You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Okay, so we did two podcasts on the 1988 election. You break everybody's back. That's from the Lee Atwater quote, in the end, you break everyone's back. He was referring to the South Carolina primary and the fact that the Bush campaign running against Dole and all the others just saw South Carolina as kind of their insurance policy that would break everybody's back. In other words, he had the governor of the state locked up. He had the organization locked up and no one could effectively compete. And so they knew they were going to win South Carolina, and that came right before the big primary of Super Tuesday and influenced the news coverage of it and made George Bush the front runner. But it is an open question still, I believe, as to what would happen had Dole come out of a win in Iowa, right, and then stunning Bush, the third place, and then you get to New Hampshire, and if Dole wins that, And he well could have. I mean, if he ran the inoculation ad, if he ran an ad saying, I will not raise taxes, looking into the camera, even if it was income taxes. And then if Bush runs the straddle ad, which says that, you know, Dole can't say no, it doesn't look credible. And they probably wouldn't even run that ad if Dole had come out with an an inoculation advertisement. But he doesn't. And history is different, right? But if Dole wins New Hampshire, now you suddenly have the vice president having lost the two contests. And I don't know, you know, and then Strom Thurmond's uh, endorsing Bob Dole. In most states, Bob Dole had the senators locked up. And Dole's a powerful figure. He's the majority leader, former RNC chair, just like George Bush was. Definitely a campaign of two establishment people between Dole and Bush. It's just kind of which side of things, either the congressional side or the executive branch. One of the things Dole says in a 2007 interview we featured little snippets of that interview in the cast is that you know if he was president there'd be a lot more working with congress he he really feels like he would have been reelected because he would have been able to get more done than either bush or after him clinton ever did because they were too much of the outsider and you know washington doesn't work that way is the way he kept saying it so I note all that as a history that could have been. Okay. But anyway, that's the name of the series. You break everybody's back. I think it implies, too, a lot of what was going on, even in the campaigns Atwater wasn't involved in, in the way that the Dukakis campaign dealt with Gebhardt and in the way all the campaigns dealt with Biden and how there is this struggle to be the kind of seen as the top of the race in a, in a race where they were called the Seven Dwarfs, where nobody knew who these people were. And I think looking at the 1988 race, well, of course, it's about 2020. Of course, it's about a high-profile Democratic primary that's about to go on with lots of candidates and lots of debates. There were 12 debates in the Democratic primary, and they started in July of 1987, a full year and a half almost before there would be an election. So, and that was 1988, right? So, I think that... uh it's a gripe for comparisons. The idea that the candidates just aren't the type of people, they're not like the, they weren't the leaders necessarily, at least on the Republican side, you had a vice president against the majority leader of the Senate. In the Democratic side, you had nothing of the sort. All right. I mean, the closest you're going to come to it is Biden's run, where he's at least a judiciary committee head and a significant senator. You know, Al Gore wasn't even really even seen as the number one senator from the South. That would have been, you know, Sam Nunn. And he gets out of the race. Um, 
so it's yeah interesting times on the democratic side to see who is going to win but you know the democrats had this history of having run jimmy carter and so it wasn't so shocking to have like a surprise campaign that beats the establishment figures it was just you had all these kind of non-establishment figures running at the same time we talked about in the appendix on the cast a lot of things that were on the legal pad that you know i could have talked about and so i want to thank you for subscribing to the premium extra cast here you know it really helps a lot i'll tell you a quick story like the other day in preparation for more of these presidential casts uh, presidential election casts that i'm doing i was looking for information on the 1796 election which i'm really going to deem the first election because it was the first competitive election in other words washington was not in it and i think yeah it'll be an interesting thing to for the listeners, I'm sure, to, to go from 1984 to 1988 to 1796. Yeah, I like to do that. You know, we got to run the full gamut of history. Those are harder casts to put together. There's just less sources for the stuff in the 1790s. I mean, of course, you're, you're relying on the same letters um, that everyone's written. That being said, I think what really helps is political journal articles. And, you know, those cost. They're not free. So um, JSTOR, which is a significant online venue for journal articles and politics and history, used to allow like free, five free reads a month. Uh, and I would engage in this complicated process where I would read the articles and then kind of screenshot them and maybe print them out if I needed to read further. And you have to do that for each page. I just signed up now. So I signed up as for a historian-type subscription to JSTOR and JPASS is what they call it. And, you know, it is $20 a month, so that's an expense that, you know, I didn't normally have. It's an expense that I wouldn't be able to engage in without donations from people like you who are subscribing to the Premium Extra Cast. So thanks a lot for that. You know, those are the type of things now where I don't even think twice about it. Like if I have to get a certain book um, for this for this cast uh i already owned richard ben kramer's what it takes i mean that was personally interesting to me enough to read it i can't recommend that book enough i was listening to the west wing weekly podcast and eli addy who was one of the writers for the west Wing, and also served with al gore and with president obama he also recommended that book and then it hit me that yes so many of the stories as we're reading in that book, you know, you could look at West Wing episodes, particularly season six with Santos and Josh Lieben and that sort of thing and, and see little uh, stories that came out. You know, the idea that a candidate would have a second mortgage on his house. Well, many of the candidates in 1988 already had them. Biden already had one. Gephardt already had one. Many of them did. That was just an easy way to raise money because money was hard to come by in politics then. This is a time in 1988 where there was no internet. You could do a little mail order business in some of the more conservative and some of your left wing groups, such as the um, Poverty Law Center, the ACLU. They had a little thing going there, but mostly people were raising money from either PAC donations. And then a lot of the candidates in 88 had to swear off that because it looked bad. So donations had to come in from businessmen or people they knew. $1,000 in politics in 1988 was hard to come by. 
really hard to come by. I don't think you were seeing thousand dollar plate dinners in the um, Democratic side of things until the 92 election. So you're talking about where a couple hundred bucks matters. Very hard to raise money. Very hard times. Um, that was a bit of a tangent. So in any case, what it takes, Richard Ben Kramer, of course, can't just the poetry and, and what the man did. It, it's sad that, uh, he had passed, he's passed away. I wish he could, would be around to write more books. Um, but, um, another book that I got was Jules Whitcover and Jack Germans, These Broad Stripes and Bright Stars. Um, I really felt that that book was a good summation. And that's one of those things where because I have the premium cast, I just kind of don't even think twice about it. I'll order a book that I really need to make the cast better. So the premium subscribers have really helped. My history can beat up your politics to get to, to raise it a level from where it can be. The sound effects. Um, if you're hearing like um, the bus noise during uh, to make that extra point that Dukakis is going on this grueling Iowa bus trip to basically apologize to the Biden supporters and, you know, having that sound effect of a bus rolling down the road, I think just adds the emotion of it a little bit more. I could have used music, sure, but, um, you know, that's that helps. I don't think I even got enough into I read the uh, Ben Kramer quote about the Dukakis bus apology tour. I don't think I got into enough. I mean, there's a lot more. I didn't want to sit and read his book. I don't want to give you a free auto audio book. You know, the man deserves um, his uh, copyright and all that. But there are stories in that tour where you know, individual people who were Biden supporters were coming up and, and really angry at Dukakis and asking him questions. I mean, it was a really hard tour for him to do. And it wasn't necessarily a natural thing that every candidate would decide to do. Some candidate might skip Iowa and say, well, I got New Hampshire in the bag. So I'll just wait for New Hampshire. And, and you know, where Biden had built up a lot of support, and particularly he had a campaign area in uh, Council Bluffs, Iowa. Not quite sure the reason for that, but maybe it's some labor support or something that he, he was always strong with the AFL-CIO. Um, so, that was difficult, and but it also helped him win the pre- well, at least the presidential nomination. When we talk about Gary Hart and Gary Hart entering and then re-entering the race, um, I think it's important now to look at the new history that might be available. It's difficult to know all the facts, but it's becoming clear that the Gary Hart scandal was not just a simple scandal of you know, the Miami Herald looking into something. I mean, that's ultimately what happened. But that the Donna Rice and the monkey business boat and Gary Hart being on that boat was the result of a lobbyist who had mixed connections between Democrats and Republicans. And it's all possibly one of the Atwater tricks. There is a person who was friends with Atwater who or knew him enough, I guess, to get an admission from him when Atwater was sick and was giving kind of deathbed um, statements and uh, and writing letters of apology, including to both Michael and Kitty Dukakis, 
um, about what he had done during the 1988 campaign. And now that he was kind of dying, felt bad about it. Now, you know, I, I should say, to be fair about it, that you take a voice like Mary Madeline in her book, All's Fair is in Love and Politics, that uh, she's really you know, condemning people that are making too much of this. You know, he's a sick man. He's talking. Yes, sure. You know, how would, how would we all feel when we're at the death's door there? Um, does it mean that like no one should engage in politics? And, and she feels like that the legacy of Atwater was more of a how to run strong campaigns and a continued spearhead focus on the message, you know, and if you look at 92, the Democrats did a better job of that than Bush, and they won. Okay, but in any case, it's possible that the whole Hart thing was an Atwater setup. You know, Gary Hart's been given that evidence. It's, uh, the person that Atwater told had decided not to reveal it. Uh, I'm not entirely sure why, but it came out many years later. Hart's aware of it now. You know, from Hart's point of view, he's like, I should have just taken a helicopter and got out of there. You know, because he he he's has indicated that he remembers there being an unusual amount of activity on shore, you know, like that they were partying on the ship. And then there was this unusual amount of people coming up and perhaps taking pictures and things from the shore that then normally would be present with a party boat. Um, you can always make the case so that Gary Hart, you know, some of it is that he was set up and some of it is that, well, why did he allow himself to be there? And that question will just continue for his part. Uh, he says the pain of it always haunts him. You know, he's in his 80s now um, and all that. It's painful while it's unfolding, too. And that's what Hart talks about in recent interviews. Two, two campaign press staff are stuck in New Hampshire while he's in Colorado trying to answer questions. The front-running campaign in 1987 in a week's time is over. I don't know if I conveyed that well enough, even in the cast, but that's what you have to think about. Um, you know, Hart kind of uh, very interesting person in a lot of ways. You know, he had this kind of Kennedy image. He was a telegenic guy who seemed to, seemed to hate his own, that's it, telegenicity. Uh, he didn't want to be charming. He told a report of that. But just that kind of, and especially with the Kennedy image formed in so many voters' minds. But that wasn't who he was. He wasn't, a, you know, there's a famous story about, well, it's not that famous. There's a story I read in Richard Reeves' book, President Kennedy, about how on the campaign, Kennedy's making this speech about farmers and agriculture and blah, 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 and farm prices, and then tells one of his aides, like, I, I didn't know even what I said. That wasn't Gary Hart. He would know every sentence of that policy. He would have thick books. He would read them. He wanted to become president in order to develop very detailed and structured policies. And that contrast between how he looked and who he really was is is something very interesting. Um, given that, though, he he was a little more reserved, and he didn't like the press. I mean, even before all that done a right stuff and how would that have been that's something to consider we we have a president now who enjoys kind of relishing and attacking press um well hart did too i mean some of the attacks on press came after but he had a standoffish policy about the press how would that have been 
as president, something to think about. Um, is calling a story, you know, even as a 80 year old, he mostly writes off the story as sensationalism. Does using the term fake news or using the term sensationalism, is it that much different? You know, it's still a kind of like push off of media investigation. And I wonder how that presidency would have been. Because I, you know, the reason I bring it up at all is because it's, it's tempting to say that, you know, Hart might have made a, made a good president. Um, you're hearing that quote Atwater saying that he was almost near the presidential circle. I don't think Atwater agree with his politics one bit, but, you know, he was a viable candidate, no doubt. You know, he attacks the Miami Herald for not doing a full stakeout of the whole time at his house. And he goes over and argues with the reporters and attacks them on small details. But, you know, those details and the time of their stakeout doesn't seem relevant because they seem to hit gold, if you will, in terms of they, they, they hit what was going on. So arguing about the stakeout just seems like, you know, we would have had this press relations that were. I, I doubt he ever calls to press the enemy, but. He's an endlessly perplexing guy. Let's just put it that way. Now, Hart's career doesn't end immediately after his presidential run, though. He's not heard of too much after that. Uh, He goes and gets a degree from Oxford. He keeps working on policies. Hart's involved in a board looking at terror in the Middle East prior to 9-11 along with Warren Rudman, uh, who's a Republican. And in January 2001, this is January 2001, months before 9-11, this is what they write. Americans will likely die in American soil, possibly in large numbers. They recommend a Homeland Security Agency years before it happens, because the initial reports of this committee happened before 2001. Both statements, the call for the Homeland Security and the uh, comment about Americans dying on soil, were ignored by the news media, not even newspapers, like not even WAPO in the New York Times or anything like that. It's just a committee report that is delivered and to no comment at all. It's only after 9-11 that they dig this up. And on September 21st, 2001, Hart appears before Congress and advocates for the creation of a Homeland Security Agency. No homeland czar can possibly hope to coordinate the almost hopeless disposal of a dispersal of authority that currently characterizes the 40 or 50 agencies or elements of agencies with some piece of responsibility for protecting our homeland. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism. All while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right? is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, 
and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Uh, so that's Gary Hart. We discussed Biden's family tragedy in the part one but, you know, we shouldn't just think that this is the only one of the 1988 candidates to have any sacrifice. I mean, obviously, Bush's plane was shot down in World War II. Gephardt's son and his cancer, and he has a pediatric cancer that, you know, initially in the local hospital in Missouri, they write him off. So they go flying to hospitals to find a treatment. The treatment is grueling extensive it's painful for his son but his son does make it through and all of this while Gephardt serving as a congressman and kind of rising as a force in democratic politics of course bob dole sacrificed his his use of his arm in world war ii and uh dukakis and kitty dukakis uh her revelations uh, came out about uh, her alcoholism and depression after Michael Dukakis' defeat, in fact, a year, the anniversary of that defeat, she has an incident where she's hospitalized drinking a bottle of uh, rubbing alcohol. So it's not something that ends after the Maybe is even added to uh, the stress of the presidential campaign and, and that emotional effect of losing these elections. Uh, something that I think Ben Kramer's book helps with understanding. These are people running. Political events take a, a toll. Uh, Kitty Dukakis later becomes an advocate of ECT therapy. This is a advanced, um, you might say electroshock, but these days there's a low-voltage uh, way of doing it. They're even working on uh, magnets. And there is a CBS crew uh, films her getting this therapy in 2007. So she's continued to advocate for issues. But you see that... The personality behind politics is not just Biden, and it's not just Hart. Um, a little more on Biden. Uh, we 
kind of glossed over just because I, I didn't want to just make it all about Biden. Initially, when I had written the sketch for You Break Everybody's Back, we didn't even have anything about Atwater or anything about Bush and Dole. I really just, it was initially going to be a podcast about Biden. And then, uh, you know, some thought in my mind that Biden's a 2020 candidate. Maybe I shouldn't just do a podcast about his history. Uh, might seem like advocacy or conversely might seem like tearing the guy down, uh, or, you know, rehashing the plagiarism stuff. So I want to do the full scope of the 88 election. We had just done 84. So it seemed to work because it fits nicely. I mean, you obviously have Gary Hart and Jesse Jackson running from 84 going into 88. Um, what I didn't talk about enough is that. Biden has a tough decision on whether to withdraw or not. And I think a lot of it has to do, if you look at both the staff accounts and his own memoir, it, a lot of it has to do with the fact that the Bork hearings were going on and that he felt that the plagiarism allegations and everything else coming up and reporters finding like a different thing every week that he had to either verify or just couldn't verify some statement, you know, to a level of a standard that wasn't other candidates were not being held to, um, that he could no longer, he was feeling like it might hurt the Bork hearings. And so the first thing he actually does is go to the Judiciary Committee and offer the, to the Democrats on the Judiciary Committee that he could step down as chair and, you know, um, recuse himself during the Bork hearings because he was a presidential candidate. They do not want that. They do not want that to a person. So, okay, I think then the next thing he's looking at is this is going to start to hurt. If I keep running for president, it's going to start to hurt the chances on Bork. And so he makes that call. Uh, I also feel that um, the family, his sister, his brother, very strong in that decision. They wanted the campaign. They just didn't feel the campaign could could continue. It's the Syracuse law stuff. I think was one of the one of the straw that broke the camel's back. There, the two aides I referenced, Tom Ridley and um, Mike Donaldson, just you know didn't want him. Uh, didn't want to do it anymore. Just this wasn't a campaign that was going to go everywhere if every, every time they were talking about plagiarism. But Pat Cadell has literally like a freakout session uh, where he's calling up, you know, Biden's brother Jim, um, the aides, some leaking to some newspaper reporters that he and continues to talk into Biden's ear that he wants him to continue to run. And that he even accuses um, the family of a conspiracy to end the Biden campaign here. You know, maybe hinting that they're working with somebody else. He's he's just livid about it. Cadell and Biden go all the way back. Uh, Biden Biden's run for the Senate is what starts Pat Cadell's career. And then he's going to go on to Carter and work with that campaign. Um, he's really looking for a candidate that can kind of be the baby boomer candidate. I mean, did you notice, of course, that all the references to baby boomers starting to get into their 40s and things during this election? I mean, it's, you know, <laughs> uh, it's interesting to see how generations kind of catered to and, and treated as we seem to be doing that again, both with the millennials and the Gen Z and all that and just kind of 
endless focus on them. But that's what Pat Cadell wanted to focus on. He didn't feel like these labor Paul type Democrats that were sitting around and determining candidates. And then at the same time, um, you know, special interest group candidates, candidates that were really going for one minority or the other, you know, that shouldn't be where the Democratic Party was. The Democratic Party should be about baby boomers, middle class, suburbanites, maybe round out, smooth out the edges a little and talk about just general things. And and you see this debate still playing out endlessly in the Democratic Party, like whether they should be advocating hardcore issues or whether they should just talk in general terms and try to be cool about it. Um, so it's uh, – that's a little bit about Biden there. I think that it was more of a struggle for him to withdraw, and then he's not going to be able to um, – you know, he, he's not talked about again until you get to the 2008 uh, and he runs and then is selected for vice president. Lee Atwater was also successful at planting stories and that really remind you of today's social media. Uh, they would be like some nobody that would tell a reporter some things and start announcing it like it was like the word of God. Um, some like obscure Idaho state senator uh, would say like, you know, to Kitty Dukakis had burned a flag in college and there's no proof of it, but there's no proof disputing it. Uh, and the press just like wouldn't stop talking about it in the chatter behind the scenes. And it was influencing coverage, you know, even if it wasn't directly reported on an angry Susan Estrich in 2004 you know, was so mad over this swift boat attacks on John Kerry because, you know, she was bemoaning that that there was a planted rumor. There are always planted rumors that, for instance, had conflated Kitty's depression with Michael Dukakis uh, having depression during his loss of the governorship. Um, I've been to this movie, Susan Estridge said about the when she saw the swift boot ads. You know, and lies move the numbers like that. They actually were moving some of the poll ratings, the more that these things, you know, so she's so mad when she sees like the swift vote veterans for the truth. She's like she calls for an independent group. How about dead Texans for the truth to talk about Bush's National Guard service um, and how, uh, you know, uh, and, and things like that. Of course, it gets some outrage uh, when it's when it's published in 2004. Um it demonstrates the political changes from Nixon to Clinton to Kerry and to Trump. Skilled political hands like Estridge, you know, I think need to consider these tactics are out there. They've been there before and start to consider ways of combating them. One of the things, and I, I looked at in research for this podcast, a documentary on attack ads. And Dukakis says that the way to combat the attack ads is to pin them on your opponent and make your opponent seem like someone who uses this tactic. It's very difficult to do, he says. And that's what they tried to do in the 1988 general election. Dukakis has this ad that's like shows the 
Willie Horton ad and shows how distorted it is. And then you see Michael Dukakis's, you know, and then he appears on the screen and says, like, this, do you want this being, you know, it's time to stop this, like, craven politics and that kind of thing. I, I must disagree. I, I'm not sure. I mean, maybe that's one play, and that play, along with other simultaneous plays of defense and attack, should be going on in any modern campaign. For instance, if there's going to be this kind of, like, third-party leaking, I think you have to come out there with it on both sides if it's going to happen. Um, because it's, it's part of the campaign now, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's in the, you know, what's my, my, uh, the deli I used to work, the old owner would say when we got a Canadian coin in the cash register, you know, it's in the economy now, just put it in, give it to somebody else, that kind of thing. I mean, it, it is, it is what it is. So I think campaigns just acting surprised that this is starting to happen, that there's kind of like below level rumors. They need to think about Susan Estridge in 2004 and in 1988 and say, you know, the dirty tricks of 1972 and the Watergate era. And yeah, we've seen this movie before. Don't be a campaign manager and not have this as part of your strategy. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance Podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. How about Jesse Jackson uh, and his running for campaign was it really a pioneer campaign in 1988 so that 20 years later you're going to see an african-american elected president uh the it's hard though when you think about that to make the statement because there's not a lot of linear direction from one to the other you know jackson doesn't run in 1992 in fact i would say that at several points bill clinton as a candidate rejects Jackson or sort of opposes Jackson and his wing of the party and uses that to kind of get the nomination. In fact, it's almost a campaign against the 1988 campaign. Clinton makes several speeches who about how 
you know, what the caucus did in 88 wasn't good enough and you have to fight back and things like that. You also can't let them get to the right of you. And he's very much a kind of Reaganist Democrat in a lot of ways, Clinton. And he was a governor. Most of the time he was governor was during the Reagan administration. He saw, you know, two major presidential defeats, well, three major presidential defeats during his governorship. Uh, so, and he lo- lost his own governorship in Reagan's 1980 election in that sweep. So, you know, uh, where's the line, you know, from one to the other? On the other hand, of course, I think what Jackson does is set up that an African-American can run for the presidential nomination of the Democratic Party and can win states. And what he accomplished between 84 and 88 was two things. One, he got rid of that notion that he kind of had it still in 84 that uh, we're throwing away votes. Don't vote for Jesse Jackson. By 88, it was a crusade. And particularly for like African-American mayors, I'm thinking Coleman Young in Detroit, there was no longer this feeling that they had to go with the establishment and not go with this insurgent campaign. They were going with Jesse. In 84, you know, African-Americans in Alabama had gone with Mondale. Detroit had sided with Mondale, so he wins Michigan. So it's a little different by the time you get to 88, and he runs a real campaign. So I think that at least helped when Obama went for the nomination that someone had done it before. Jackson, for his own part, you know, says that that he's not, you know, in any way he doesn't want to suggest that Barack Obama didn't do something on his own or achieve a great thing on his own. In 2017, a small park was dedicated to Mike and Kitty Dukakis. Uh, it's near the campaign of uh, it's near the campus of Northeastern University. And Michael Dukakis is a professor there. He had been the president of Amtrak. As he walks to work, he sees that part of the park as in his job as a professor. When Obama's campaign wanted to point out something that Hillary Clinton had done wrong, the first thing they called her move was a Lee Atwater move which shows you the disdain in the Democratic Party for that type of politics and for the damage that was done. Um, I think, as I referenced earlier, Democrats in 1992 had, um, had picked up on the ultimate focus on the message of the day, on the, you know, linking the tactics, the strategy, the day-to-day operations to that core strategy, if not all of the, you know, more dirty, say, campaign tactics of Lee Atwater, the, the, the strategic concepts they picked up on completely. You know, that campaign in 1992 was going to be very different from Dukakis. They weren't going to get tripped up in what their opponent's message was and just responding to it. It was going to be about Bush and the economy every single day. And that's hence the writing on the blackboard in Little Rock. You know, it's the economy, stupid. So 88 set up 92. There's no doubt. 
Is it true that, uh, you know, you have to be careful of how you win an election because you might lose the next one because you've angered the partisans so much? I don't know. It's worth the wild question, though. There are a number of people, historians, people in the Democratic campaigns in the 1930s, who felt that 1932 was set up, um, particularly thinking about Jacob Raskob and the New York Democratic Party that were so upset with how Hoover had beaten Al Smith that when Smith was attacked by Klansmen in Arkansas and Oklahoma and places like this, uh, when he was, you know, when bigots had attacked him, that Hoover's responses were so, you know, just lame and, and, and almost non-existent. That to win a presidency that way excused them when they began what really was a, um, media campaign, a PR campaign based out of New York to discredit Hoover and, you know, bring, bring a boost to New York's governor, Franklin Roosevelt. Um, first, first trying with Al Smith, but seeing that he wasn't going to win, you know, helping out Franklin Roosevelt. And, you know, you see maybe the same thing between 88 and 92, maybe not. Maybe it's like elections are going to be elections, but the way that Dukakis was defeated, it kind of gave a lot of instructions to the Clinton 92 campaign. It also allowed someone like Clinton to win because he like, you just lost three elections in a row. It's time to run a Southerner. And it's time to run somebody with my approach, both my laser focus campaign and also running a little bit right in the Democratic Party to get suburban voters. So, you know, th- that's an open question. I'd just like to finally reiterate the point made by the journal article that I referenced in episode one, which talked about what happens in multi-candidate races and that, you know, a lot of people go in there thinking it's going to be the, the quick way is if I, if there's A, B, and C running, and if A and B attack each other, C is going to rise. And that happens, but... You know, with a lot of people like like Je- Jesse Jackson on the Democratic side, with Pat Robertson on the Republican side, both people who, while there are questions of whether they could win the nomination and or the election, they had the rabid fans in, within the party. And those fans wouldn't easily give up on their candidate. And so one of the observations he made, and this is the article right after the, um, right after the election, is that, um, right after the 88 election, is that, you know, in a, in a race with A, B, and C, where somebody really likes A, but they think they don't have a chance, they kind of like B, and they don't like C at all, they don't necessarily switch their support from A to B, unless B can prove that they have a very good chance of winning. And that margin of how much they can prove, you know, how much better electability they have is very important. So I think it's a three-dimensional way of looking at electability that's very interesting, and it's going to be something important as we have a race coming up. And then just the gaming of the states. I talked a bit about it in the appendix, but I'll just a, a little bit more. You know, is Ohio is Iowa going to mean anything at all? As I'm recording this, Buttigieg has just you know risen up in the Iowa polls. I had sort of predicted something like this in my conversation with Chris Novenbrino that maybe this would happen because, you know, Iowa rewards the Midwesterners from Indiana. You know, that, that that helps. 
It also rewards very active groups. These are caucuses. You have to get activists to the, to these high schools to vote, you know. Um, is it going to matter who wins Iowa? Is it going to get disregarded? It totally can at this point. That was true in 88 when Gephardt won. They're like, who is this guy? He would have had to win New Hampshire for it to beat anything. And I think that's true today, too. Um, the surprise of Iowa and New Hampshire has always been no surprise. And comebacks are possible from figures that you don't expect. And don't be surprised if people like Biden and Sanders, who are known names, stay in there and are more competitive than people think. They're not getting flashy social media attention and news media attention because they're just the kind of the expected candidates. But I think this particularly of Sanders, we already know Biden is in this race. Sanders may do better than people think because name recognition. Anyway, thanks for listening and thanks for supporting the premium podcast of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. More to come. <laughs>